0: Detectives have to be fundamentally infallible. On their journey to a mystery's solution, they can be fragile or flawed or unreliable or uncertain. But the reader has to be able to rely on the sleuth to find a satisfactory answer in the end. It's a fundamental part of what makes a whodunit work. After all, Who's going to keep reading a type of story where the hero shrugs their shoulders on the final page and says, I don't know, maybe they did it with mirrors? Over time, pulling that rabbit out of the hat in a plausible yet surprising way becomes more and more difficult for a writer. Wearying of their creation, most detective novelists either move on to a different character or drift away from the genre altogether. Writers like Niall Marsh and Michael Innes, who stuck with the same sleuth for five decades apiece, are definitely in the minority here. For the rest, a tricky question then arises. How best to conclude the career of a beloved detective? With the bang of a triumphant final case? Or just a whimper, as they are never heard from again? Agatha Christie, the best known and most widely read of all the authors to come out of detective fiction's golden age, grappled with this issue in perhaps the most unexpected way of all. Join me, then, as we delve into the surprising story of her sleuth's swan song. welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Today's episode merits a rare overall spoiler warning from me. I generally try to keep my episodes free of major plot revelations, as I'm aware that some listeners use the show as a way to discover new mysteries to read. However, it's not possible to do this particular topic justice, without discussion of what happens in Sleeping Murder and Curtain by Agatha Christie. So if you want to read either of those books for the first time without prior knowledge of how they end, I recommend choosing a different episode of She Done It to listen to for now and returning to this one once you've finished them. (laughs) By the time the Second World War began in 1939, Agatha Christie had been publishing mysteries for almost two decades. All of her major recurring characters had already appeared in print somewhere in her canon. Hercule Poirot, of course, first stepped onto the page in The Mysterious Affair at Stiles in 1921. He was followed by Tommy and Tuppence in 1922's The Secret Adversary. Miss Marple came into being for the short stories that were serialised separately and then collected in 1932's The Thirteen Problems. Secondary sleuths like Mr Quinn, Mr Satterthwaite, Ariadne Oliver, Parker Pine, Colonel Race and Superintendent Battle had also all appeared in at least one novel or story by the mid-1930s. Agatha Christie's most productive and innovative writing years were arguably already behind her. Poirot was, of course, by far her most popular character and has had a life far beyond the books, as discussed on the previous episode of the podcast. At this point, Miss Marple had only appeared in one full-length novel, 1930s The Murder at the Vicarage, but she was certainly second only to the little Belgian with the egg-shaped head in readers' hearts. Although she carried on writing at a great pace during the war, Agatha Christie's life was greatly changed by it, Her husband Max Mallowan worked for the Air Ministry and was posted abroad to North Africa. Their home in Devon, Greenway, was requisitioned by the US Navy, who installed a great number of extra lavatories in the house, much to Christie's dismay post-1945. The author herself removed to London, where she refreshed her chemist's training from the First World War and once more volunteered as a hospital dispenser. Many years later, she wrote in her autobiography that this period didn't seem real at all. The war years were a nightmare in which reality stopped. It was a furiously productive nightmare, however. Christie later put this down to the fact that she had no social life during the war at all, and instead spent her days at the hospital and her nights at her desk, turning out it. She published 13 novels between 1939 and 1945, including acclaimed classics like Evil Under the Sun, Five Little Pigs, and The Body in the Library. Those weren't the only books that she worked on, however. Two more novels flowed from her pen during this time. Apart from her literary agent and a few trusted friends and family members, however, nobody knew of these books' existence. Curtain and Sleeping Murder were destined to spend decades in a bank vault under the greatest secrecy. Their author intended that they would only see the light of day after she was dead. Agatha Christie was not shy about discussing her own demise. Perhaps fittingly for someone whose livelihood depended on inventing clever ways for people to die. In her autobiography, she expresses her surprise that her agent always looked so upset when she brought up the question of what might happen to her characters and her work if she were to pass away. She didn't feel that it was a subject to be embarrassed about at all. It seems to be this practicality about mortality that led her to begin work on Curtin in the early 1940s. Although the manuscript isn't precisely dated, Her notes for the story are mingled in with those for the stories in The Labours of Hercules that were published around this time, and she sent a finished draft of the book to her agent in 1941, so we can make a reasonable guess that she was mostly working on it in 1940. This was to be Poirot's swan song, his final outing. There is some evidence in her notebooks that the idea for this story came to her several years before she actually began to write it, but the circumstances of life post-1939 are perhaps what pushed her to get it finished. Every aspect of the plot reeks of finality. It sees Poirot return to the setting of her very first novel, Styles Court, now come down in the world from Country Manor to Genteel Guesthouse. The story rekindles Poirot's partnership with the Watson of his early adventures, Captain Hastings, who last appeared in 1937's Dumb Witness, and would not show his face again in Christie's canon until Curtin came out. And most importantly of all, it is Poirot's last case in every sense of the word, because the detective does not survive the investigation. It's a book hemmed in by death on all sides.
1: So this was you know, during the war when Agatha Christie didn't know how long she was going to live for. Like nobody knows. You don't know what's happening. You don't know if you're going to be hit by a bomb, which indeed one of our houses was in Sheffield Terrace. So there's all sorts of reasons to be thinking about your future. So it wasn't that she was necessarily thinking about when I die at a great old age, this will be something. But for all she knows, she might never have written another Poirot afterwards because people did die in bombing attacks, as as you know. So it, it sort of comes down to that about this this posthumousness. And I guess it makes sense. If you're really wanting to kill Poirot off, that's the one <laughs> that you can write and put to one side for later.
0: That's Mark Aldridge, the Agatha Christie historian and author of a recent book about Hercule Poirot. Christie always intended Curtin to be the last Poirot novel to be published, whether she was to be killed in the Blitz or, as actually happened, live for several more decades. It was to be the punctuation at the end of his story, the hard stop that would prevent other unauthorised uses of her most popular and valuable character. And it was also something of a financial insurance policy. The rights to the book were legally gifted to her daughter Rosalind, meaning that any proceeds from sales or subsequent adaptations belonged to her. The reason for this? Well, they do say that death and taxes are the only two certainties in life.
1: The intention was that, along with various other things that she distributed to lots of people, but actually, it's very difficult tax-wise, whilst you're still alive, to gift things to people. So it was basically designed to be a posthumous gift, that it meant that Rosalind would be able to reap the rewards.
0: Christie wrote later that she understood very little of what she'd been told about death duties, but that she did grasp that her demise was going to cost her relatives a great deal of money in inheritance taxes and so on. Gifting the rights to her works, then, was a way of distributing her success to friends and relations while she was still alive. And Curtin was undoubtedly going to be the jewel in the crown. Even in 1940, I think, she would have had a fair idea about how popular a book with the subtitle Poirot's Last Case was going to be. Rosalind would be well taken care of. Christie's second husband, Max, received the rights to sleeping murder in a very similar way. This was a last outing for Miss Marple, although it differs from Curtin in several important regards. Firstly, Miss Marple doesn't die in this book, and she doesn't even seem to have aged substantially, unlike Poirot, who was quite infirm by the time of his final visit to Stiles, and of course passes away there. Christie also doesn't seem to have had quite such a clear vision for sleeping murder, because the story went through various different iterations in the planning, at one time with Poirot attached as detective, and then Tommy and Tuppence, before it eventually found its final form as a Miss Marple story. Historians have long thought that it must have been written around the same time as Curtain, since it had a similar purpose in ensuring Max against Christie's death. And the author herself does bracket both books together in her autobiography. However, some detective work by John Curran, the editor of Christie's Notebooks, suggests that Sleeping Murder came together in the mid or even late 1940s, It contains a reference to the, quote, poison pen trouble down near Limstock, which is an allusion to The Moving Finger, published in 1943. And on paper, its planning was closely intertwined with that of Taken at the Flood, which came out in 1948. Regardless, both books eventually ended up in the bank vault, heavily insured, to be published after Christie's death. Even though she would go on to write many more outings for both characters, Agatha Christie had already had the final word on her Poirot and Jane Marple. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking, as I love puzzles and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. (laughs) Agatha Christie may have been more relaxed about contemplating her own death than her friends and relatives expected, but that didn't mean that she had any idea when it would happen, and thus when her two secret novels would see the light of day. In the event, Curtin actually appeared a few months before Christie passed away in January 1976. She had published a Miss Marple in 1971, Nemesis, and then a Poirot, Elephants Can Remember, in 1972. But things really came to a stop with 1973's Postern of Fate, a Tommy and Tuppence novel that isn't really up to the quality of what she'd done with the characters before. And so her daughter Rosalind, who owned the rights to Curtin, remember, had an idea.
1: It was quite a complicated thing for them to work out by the end, but it was actually Rosalind's suggestion. By the time it was obvious that Agatha Christie wasn't going to be able to write another novel, certainly, she actually suggested that perhaps it could be published. Obviously, you don't know how long, you know, Agatha is going to live with. There's no way for them to know that. But um, she did say, well, I'm going to surprise you, I think is the way she phrased it when she wrote to her agent and publisher, Agatha Christie's agent and publisher, and said, and and I think that we would quite like to publish Curtain." And then she spoke to Agatha Christie, who she seemed quite happy with it. Because I think Agatha Christie, by the end of her life, all well, I know from what she writes, that she felt a great deal of responsibility for the the Christie at Christmas as it was by this point.
0: And so to keep up that tradition of a new Christie for Christmas, Curtin was published in nineteen seventy five. It caused a global sensation and earned Hercule Poirot a new and surprising accolade. He became the first fictional character to receive a front page obituary in the New York Times. Hercule Poirot is dead, famed Belgian detective, the headline announced on the 6th of August 1975. His career, as chronicled in the novels of Dame Agatha Christie, his creator, was one of the most illustrious in fiction, the article declared. Curtin was actually one of the earlier Agatha Christie books I read when I was discovering her work when I was a teenager. I just got it out of the library, and had no idea that it had been written getting on for 40 years before it was published. When you think about this, it's rather marvellous. Somehow Christie, in 1940, managed to write a novel that didn't feel anachronistic or out of place in 1975.
1: That was a deliberate choice. She says that in her letters, that she had deliberately done that. and She also said that she gave permission to Rosalind or whoever to make any changes to it before publication that they felt was necessary. Bear in mind, she's probably thinking at this time, that, that it might be you know, 30 years in the future, not necessarily 36 or whatever it ends up being. So it's quite a long old time and so much changes in that time that you can't envision that, can you? So she was probably thinking along the lines of whether brands of coffee or something <laughs> come out in our fashion. In the end, it is still a sort of period piece because the, the sort of tone of it is different to how she's writing in the 60s in particular, I would say, that it's it goes back to this sort of country house feeling. But, yeah, absolutely, you wouldn't know. I mean, now we're so far away from it again now that you read it and it's 45 years. And is it really that different reading a book that's 45 years than one that's 75 years? Maybe a little bit, but the further away we get, the more these, these periods seem to condense in history a little bit, don't they, that, that suddenly things that felt massively distinctive about them, they sort of start to get mixed a bit. So in our sort of cultural memory. So I think that over time, most people will approach it like you did.
0: I recommend rereading both of these novels, actually, and thinking about their long sojourn in a bank vault as you do so. It really seems extraordinary that they worked for readers at the time of publication, stripped of all the detail of setting and place that would have situated them in the 1970s rather than the 1940s. But perhaps it's because the atmosphere of an Agatha Christie was so well-established by this time that readers barely noticed anything out of the ordinary. These stories happen in a kind of alternate whodunit universe, and time doesn't work in quite the same way there. Miss Marple's final full-length novel, Sleeping Murder, was actually published posthumously as planned. It appeared later on in 1976, and had a slightly more troubled gestation period than Curtin. Twice during the decades between the novel being written and her death, Christie had to change its title. Originally she wanted to call it Murder in Retrospect, which is a good representation of the plot's focus on crimes of the past that resurface in the present. But then her American publishers used this title when they brought out Five Little Pigs in the US. It was then renamed Cover Her Face, which is a quotation from the Jacobean revenge tragedy The Duchess of Malfi by John Webster. The full line being, cover her face, mine eyes dazzle, she died young. P. D. James used this title for a novel in 1962 though, so Christie once more had to think again, and eventually plumped for sleeping murder. It is a strong story, with some extremely creepy moments, but it in no way climbs to the heights that Curtin does. The best thing about Curtain, I think, is the way that it brings together several of Christie's finest moments with Hercule Poirot, while also working as a story in its own right. This is no Greatest Hits album that rests on its laurels. This is a story about a canny, unlikely murderer who goes about his crimes in such a way that even Hercule Poirot is, for a while, at a loss as to how to bring him to justice. Back at Styles and in the company of his loyal friend Hastings once more, Poirot eventually has to perpetrate a break in the rules of classic Golden Age detective fiction, even more dramatic than the one Christie pulled off in the murder of Roger Ackroyd in 1926. The detective must not himself commit the crime, Ronald Knox declared in his famous Ten Commandments for the genre, but Poirot ends up taking matters into his own hands and executing the murderer before gently allowing his own illness to end his life. John Curran writes that Curtain is the most dazzling example of literary leisure de main in the entire Christie output. And I agree. Christie hinted at Poirot's egotism when it comes to the dispensing of justice before, most notably in Murder on the Orient Express, and it is that certainty and command of every situation that readers love. Hastings and Jap might roll their eyes as he extols the superiority of his little grey cells, but they, and we, know that he's right. In this final case, Agatha Christie makes the detective's power over life and death practical rather than just theoretical. Hercule Poirot is infallible to the last. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.